prize. I've already got the prize. The prize is the pleasure of finding a thing out. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You realize when you know how to think, it empowers you far beyond those who know only what to think. Are we going? We're going, we're going, we're live. All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Griffins and Gluons. I'm your host, Elliot, and today I'm joined once again by my co-host, Callum Wareham. Callum, how are you? I'm doing well today, Elliot. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and actually today we're joined by one of our most accomplished professors in our department, Dr. Eric Poisson. He holds a bachelor's degree in physics from Laval University and a master's and PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Alberta. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship under the tutelage of Kip Thorne at the California Institute of Technology and spent a year conducting research at Washington University before coming to the University of Guelph in 1995. He's the author and co-author of over 94 publications, as well as a textbook titled Gravity, Newtonian, Post-Newtonian, and Relativistic, which was nominated for a 2015 Prose Award for Scholarly Excellence, and a Relativist Toolkit, which was published in 2004. In 2005, he received the Herzberg Medal by the Canadian Association of Physicists and was elected Fellow of the American Physical Society in 2008 for his contributions to theory to the theory of gravitational radiation. Currently, he's the head of the gravitation group where he conducts research on black holes, neutron stars, and gravity. Dr. Poisson, or Eric, as we, uh, as you prefer, thank you so much for coming on. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. That, and, that was quite a list of achievements there. I feel, uh, I feel I've done stuff. <laughs> of course. And, and, uh, it's obviously a very stellar resume, no pun intended, but, uh, one thing for sure that, that stuck out to me initially was your, your authorship on, uh, on some textbooks. And I think we as students kind of take for granted the amount of time, the amount of effort, the amount of content that's in a textbook. We, we rarely ever like get, get to read it cover to cover. So I just wanted to know what, uh, what went into writing a textbook? What was the process like? Right. So, I mean, I guess I've always enjoyed the, the process of writing. I find that when I write, I tend to organize my thoughts a lot better than if I don't do it. Even if I do handwriting notes, it's always a little bit sloppy. But when I put it all down and I write it all up in a nice, you know, LaTeX format, I find that it really forces me to organize my thoughts. And I found that this was helping my teaching. And, uh, you know, I've developed a lot of lecture notes for courses over the years. And, you know, that was something that I always enjoyed doing. And I think, you know, was helping out uh, for the students and so on. And uh, occasionally I felt that, okay, that effort could be expanded into an actual book. So when I, uh, when I newly arrived, when I was newly arrived at Guelph, I was given the responsibility for a graduate course in general relativity. And I felt that the course that I wanted to give didn't really match uh, any of the textbooks that I could find. I mean, you know, there were some topics that I could find in books, but there are lots of them that I didn't find and that I wanted to teach. And I felt, okay, so let's write up some lecture notes on this. And eventually, uh, you know, that grew and grew and, you know, I would improve on them and eventually it became a book. So that was the, you know, that was the thing. At some point I decided there was enough there that was new, original, different from anything else that you could find in the market that, you know, I felt that could be a book. And then I approached a publisher and that got published. Uh, and then the, the second book, that was the same thing. So there was, you know, uh, you know a gap in the literature uh, that was on, you know, post-Newtonian theory. So the approximation methods uh, in general relativity. And there was nothing really out there for people who wanted to learn this stuff. And Clifford Will and I, Clifford Will was my postdoc advisor when I was at Wash, uh, Washington University. Uh, we sort of decided, yeah, it would be a good idea to you know, to put out something like this. So we worked on this for about five years, and and then you know that became the second book. So yeah, I mean, so long answer, but the bottom line is that writing is something I really enjoy, and it really helps me with with my you know preparation of courses and presentation of the material. So I, I really find that very worthwhile. To go on with that, you know, I mean, I 
you know, with the textbooks, I, I can see that, you know, your passion for writing in the, the lecture notes that you've written, which for both, there, we've got two courses that are posted on uh, the website, uh, the course, the, the department website, mechanics course and uh, mathematical physics, both of those, you've got basically textbooks for written um, as well. So, and I, you know, I, we genuinely appreciate those and, and your passion for writing comes out in those. So thank you well, again thank you. for all Yeah, of thank that. you. It's nice to hear. <laughs> It's yeah. nice to hear no, that, you know, the hard work is, uh, you know, is appreciated. <laughs> it definitely is. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so I also, I want to ask you about what first got you interested in physics, um, you know, when you were younger. What led you down this path before you were Eric Lassalle, uh, you know, gravitation specialist? Um, what led you to uh, a career in physics? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of those things. So I, I didn't start out this way. I didn't have, you know, parents or uncles or aunts who were physicists who could really show me the track. And I, I sort of stumbled on it. Uh, so uh, so in Quebec, we have, so I grew up in, in, uh, in Quebec City. And in Quebec, we have a different education system. So we have high school, then we have two years of CEGEP, and then we enter university. And Cégep is supposed to be this place where you figure out what you want to do, and then you make the right choices, and you go to university. So in Cégep, I took the science option because, you know, I was told that's what you should do if you don't want to close any doors. So I, I did that. But at the time, I, di I didn't really, uh, you know, find myself all that much attracted to physics until I took a course that was a sort of an extra course that I didn't have to take, but I took it anyway. And it was a course on modern physics, and you know, at the at the level appropriate for for that, uh, we were you know we were told things about special relativity and quantum mechanics and things like that, not in a heavily you know mathematical way because that was still you know pre-university uh, physics, but it really got me very excited because you know all of those cool things that you encounter when you study relativity and quantum mechanics, I thought was so, you know, uh, amazing and so fascinating that I really started to, you know, dig up on that. I, I started to read a lot of stuff on physics and that really got me hooked. So when it was time to decide what I should do for university, I said, okay, let's go in physics. And that, you know, and then, you know, it all, you know, unraveled from there. So it was a lucky chance and I couldn't be more grateful because I really enjoyed my, you know, my time doing physics. Was there, uh, was there anyone in particular in terms of maybe like established physicists that kind of, you know, inspired you to, to pursue research like Carl Sagan or, or Stephen Hawking or any other kind of personal heroes? Yeah, not, uh, let's see. So Stephen Hawking, of course, was a big name, but he became a big name, um, I guess as I was entering university, I mean, he, I think he became really famous at around that time. Uh, Carl Sagan, I was aware of, but I never watched his program. So I, you know, he really didn't have a direct influence. So I, I can't really pinpoint anybody like that who really, you know, would have served as somebody, you know, to uh, to inspire or to emulate or something like that. I, I, I can't think, I mean, I, I guess the the first one that I really encountered who was, you know, who became a physics hero for me was Feynman. Well, Einstein, obviously, Einstein. So I should, I should start with Einstein. But, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, even begin to think that you can, you know, emulate Einstein. Uh, but you can certainly be inspired by Einstein. But, you know, so when I, you know, first started out looking at relativity and studying a little bit of quantum mechanics, well, he was a name that kept coming back. So obviously that exerted a fascination. But I mean, the first, the first one who, you know, became a physics hero apart from him was Feynman. So I guess when I was at university, I came across the Feynman, uh, you know, the stories that he published, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And of course, he's that, you know, great character with lots of great anecdotes to tell. And I thought, well, that was pretty cool. Again, I never thought I could emulate him, but, you know, he was somebody who sort of inspired me, but not really in the physics sense. He was, he was entertaining. I mean, I, I, I felt entertained by him. And, you know, that was one of the names that I came across this way. 
as I became, you know, as I started doing my PhD in physics uh, and in gravity in particular, then all those names associated with gravity became a lot more important, like, you know, Kip Thorne, like uh, Stephen Hawking, like Roger Penrose, all of those big guys that had made, you know, seminal contributions to the field. I mean, those I became very aware of. And, you know, my collection of heroes uh, grew a lot at that, you know, at that time. Awesome. And yeah, another thing I want to ask you kind of on a personal note uh, is, you know, what else do you like to do besides physics? Obviously, I'm sure physics takes up a lot of your time, but uh, what do you do in your, your free time that you find? Yeah, the five minutes a day that I have for, for you know, <laughs> for entertainment and such. No, I mean, it's more than that. So you have to keep a balance in life. And well, I guess the main thing that I do outside of work is uh, play guitar. So I have been playing guitar since I was about 15 years old, something like that. Before that, I was playing the piano. So I still play the piano to, to some extent, but I, I became a lot better at guitar. And, um, and uh, so I have an electric guitar. Well, in fact, I have two electric guitars at home and I, I play that pretty much every day. And that, that's something I really enjoy doing. And it's completely different from, from physics and from science. It's a completely way, you know, different way of occupying your mind. And I thought, you know, I think that's, I find that very healthy, but also very therapeutic. You know, if I, if I feel frustrated about something, I just crank up the amp and, you know, play loud and that, that helps. That helps a lot. When, so when you say play loud, I'm assuming you're talking about probably rock or blues, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm really into you know, rock, mostly blues to some extent, but uh, mostly mostly rock, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, that, I can see uh, those sorts of things being a great release uh, <laughs> for <is>. sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, other things like reading and watching movies and, you know, going for a walk and hiking and, you know these nice, you know, things that keep your body, uh, you know, uh, your body healthy. Do you have, uh, do you have like, a sort of, do you, do you cover uh, music like a lot from a certain band or a certain subgenre, but that really kind of gets you going like, like certain rock groups like Led Zeppelin or. Yeah. I mean, or... Zeppelin, I mean, yeah. So it, it's, it's hard to avoid. I mean, it's one of the standards. I mean, the Beatles is, you know, something that I discovered. I discovered the Beatles when I was something like 12 and I got, you know, I never got over them. So I don't listen to them all that much, but I, I love them a lot. And, and, you know, I play, you know, a lot of their songs. So yeah, recently Zeppelin, I, I had a phase. I, I haven't played much Zeppelin recently. Uh, Dire Straits is something I got into a bit more recently, so I started to, you know, to rehearse some of the songs. Uh, what else? Uh, Rolling Stones, you know, again, you can't avoid that. Uh, if I were really good, I'd get into, you know, Radiohead and things that I really, really appreciate to listen to, but, I mean, it's a little bit above my, uh, you know, ability level. Um, and and I, need, I need to ask, which two guitars do you have? <laughs> Okay, you really want to get into this? Uh, I, 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 I have a Strat and a Tele, so uh, if oh, that means anything. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. That's, so that's one day I'll I'll go beyond the single coil and I'll you know I'll I'll get myself a humbucker guitar, but you know I really like oh, that man. sound. My my dream guitar is a Telecaster. I, yeah, I, it's pretty I, cool. I, I got that recently, and I yeah, I really like it. One day, one day. But uh, on on a more lighter note, actually, and I, th this isn't meant to uh, to critique anything, but I understand you you prefer to be addressed as Eric rather than Doctor Poisson, and 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 I notice this with a few other professors that they prefer just the first name. Is that just because it reminds you of like an older version of yourself? Because <laughs> if I if I if I had Doctor in front of my name, I would abuse the living daylights out of it. Like I would, I would love it if everyone just called me Doctor Elliot or whatever. So, so is this sort of like, uh, like you don't want to be reminded of your dad, or, or you don't want to be reminded as an old man, or that kind yeah, of thing? it's 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 the old uh, it's the old man thing. Uh, I guess when I got started out, I really didn't want to emphasize the difference in age between myself and the students, and you know that I thought was helping. As I got older, I met more resistance to being called Eric. And I guess that says something about the age difference, you know, asserting itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's when you first get your PhD, of course, it's really cool to have the official title that goes with it. 
And there was a time where, you know, you could hope to be bumped in first class uh, in an airline uh, if, uh, by an airline, if you claim to be a doctor. And of course, they thought that meant medical doctor, but, you know, you could explain that later if the needed, you know, if the need arose. Anyway, but yeah, uh, eventually you get over it. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a nice thing to have. But, uh, you know, if you keep, if you keep branding it, it's, uh, it's, it gets a little bit silly. But I really, I mean, I'm pretty informal and I, I don't like to put formalities between myself and others. And, uh, and that's my attempt. But I, you know, in recent years, I've noticed that the students resist quite a bit in calling me Eric. And I find that maybe, you know, the formality is there uh, for your benefit more than mine, maybe. I don't know. Uh, you can, you know, maybe you can explain that one to me. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's just what we're, what we're used to. We, we, I've never called any of my high school or middle school teachers just by their first name. It's always been Mr. or Professor or Mrs. or or uh, if, if they have if they have a doctorate, it's usually Doctor. So it's just how I was kind of. Ra- I don't know about you, Callum. I don't know if you had a similar. Experience. Yeah, I mean, I think we're told often in like as students that we you know always call your professor by uh, you know doctor or professor and just in case like you don't know uh it's you know it's different when they've you know signed an email eric or or said in their course outline i don't you know please call me eric but you know people just default to the professor or uh doctor i think as yeah maybe trying to protect themselves from a you know (laughs) yeah maybe he didn't really mean it when he said that yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah anyway, so, exactly. So the the point is to make everybody comfortable, and if you're more comfortable calling me by uh, you know a fancy title, then fine. I mean, I, I don't really mind it. Well, that's yeah, that's fair. And you know, on I want to segue kind of into uh, talking about your research a little bit. Uh, while we still got time for that. Um, so, can you uh, give our listeners kind of maybe at the not necessarily first year level, but maybe second year level uh, a rundown of you know, your, your research focus and, and what you do, you know, every day at work. Right. So, uh, so the first thing is that I'm a theoretical physicist. So what I do mostly is do calculations and that can mean either, you know, pen and paper and, you know, lots of scratches and, you know, let's do it again. And, you know, and page after page of calculations, or it can mean, you know, do stuff on maple or do stuff, you know, in, you know, for example, numerical integrations, right. Uh, I do calculations on a computer, but what I don't do is go to the lab and, you know, put some apparatus together and tweak some knobs to get, you know, to get some measurements So that, that I don't do. Uh, then, you know, my field of specialization is gravity. So uh, as I told you, I, I started being fascinated with gravity. No, I didn't tell you that, but, you know, as I progressed through my undergraduate years, I discovered from special relativity, the wonderful world of general relativity, which is all about gravitation. So I got to, you know, I got to be hooked on gravitation. And then I was lucky enough to do a PhD in that and then have a postdoc and build a research career on gravity research. And um, before I came to Guelph, uh, you mentioned it, I was, uh, I was at Caltech for a few years. And I was really fortunate to be there at the time when the focus of research uh, went uh, to gravitational waves. So that was at the time where there were no detectors. I mean, no detectors built. They were about to be, you know, uh, funded by the uh, Natural Science Foundation in the U.S. And it was very important, even, you know, so long before anything would happen, to establish a science case and establish what, you know, could be done uh, with uh, the measurement of gravitational waves. And that's when I started to think about, you know, black holes orbiting one another and therefore emitting gravitational waves, neutron stars orbiting one another and therefore emitting gravitational waves. And I started to build, um, you know, a lot of the infrastructure, theoretical infrastructure, me and, you know, lots of other people working in the world that would became the backbone, you know, the, the backbone of gravitational wave measurement. So, I mean, of course, you need to build the detectors and that's a tremendous you know, practical and technological challenge. But uh, if you didn't have all of the theoretical background knowledge behind it, 
if you didn't know what you were looking for, you would not find it because what you're looking for is most of the time heavily buried in noise. And if you want to dig it out from the noise, you have to apply, you know, filtering tools that require a lot of theoretical knowledge of what you're looking for. And that's the sort of thing that I started doing at the time. And I kept on doing uh, since then. Uh, more recently, I've been really in, uh, interested in what happens uh, when you have, for example, two orbiting black holes or two orbiting neutron stars, and each star is starting to feel the tidal field exerted by the other one. And because of that tidal field, they start deforming. And because they, uh, they deform, uh, their orbital motion starts to change. And because the orbital motion is a little bit changed, uh, the nature of the gravitational waves is a little bit changed, and that all feeds eventually into a potential way of measuring the tidal deformation of neutron stars or black holes in gravitational waves. So a lot of people are very excited about this. Measurements have been attempted, not, succeed, you know, not successfully yet, but it's a very exciting field of research, and that's what's been dominating my, you know, my uh, research time for you know, quite some time now. So with those sorts of measurements, like, is that something that should be there, you know, often like a pulsar, like, or frequently like a pulsar is, you know, always in the sky or, um, and, but something like the, what I understand about uh, some of the measurements from LIGO that have happened so far have been, you know, a large, you know, major event, like a black hole merger or something like that. But based on what you're saying, would we expect these tidal interactions to be just a kind of a uh, gravitational wave background sort of thing? No, so, so, they, 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 so they're, they're, they come whenever you have one of those binary black holes or binary neutron stars merging. So you need, a, you know, you need an event like this to, uh, to create a measurable signal in a detector like LIGO. So if you, I mean, there are lots of things in the universe that will produce gravitational waves, but most of them are too weak to be detected by, by our current detectors. Uh, the, the, the tidal aspect of the signal is always there. It's, it's just that unless the signal is very strong and very clear, you won't be able to discern it. Uh, so that's why it's been attempted, but not you know, successfully so far, because the signals that we got uh, were not strong enough. I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about uh, gravitational wave signals from, uh, from colliding neutron stars. So you need neutron stars to produce tidal effects that are measurable and you need that signal to be strong enough to be able to, you know, reveal those, you know, those subtle effects coming from the, from the tidal forces. And uh, so it's still for the future, but I think we're talking about, you know, the next five years, maybe the next 10 years, uh, something, uh, something like that. I, uh, I wanted to ask you quickly actually about a paper that you uh, wrote with Dr. Landry. Um, when you talked about, uh, sorry, I, I want to make sure I pronounce everything correctly. Irritational bodies to an applied tidal field. I think there was, uh, sorry, gravitational, oh gosh, <laughs> the, the, the title was a bit long. I'm sorry, I cut it down a bit. But it, it, you were talking about representing the rigidity of a, of a body by using love numbers. Wow, um, you, you've done your research. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw it appear a lot in your work. I just wanted to know, can you give a brief explanation on love numbers and how you use them uh, throughout your research? Right. So the love number is really, uh, and it, it's named after somebody who was actually called Love, who uh, was a geophysicist. So his, uh, his interest was in the tidal deformation of the Earth. And what he did was to introduce those numbers that give you, it's basically a, a proportionality between the applied tidal forces and the amount of deformation that, for example, the Earth oceans uh, will undergo. So, I mean, you introduce the tidal forces coming from the moon, and then you do a modeling of the earth to figure out how much the oceans will swell because of the tides. And the ratio between tidal forces and the tidal deformation is captured by that love number. So what, uh, so what I did and others did too, was to promote this love number going away from the earth, but promoting them to love numbers for neutron stars, but it's basically the same idea. You have the tidal forces exerted by the companion star. You have the deformation of the neutron star because of those tidal forces, and the love number is the ratio between the two. And it turns out to be a, a, very, use, uh, sorry, a very useful quantity to think about 
And it's a quantity that uh, reveals the internal details of the object. So the love number for the Earth will be very different from the love number for a neutron star because of the internal composition being so different between the two bodies. So it turns out that the love number is something you can hope to measure, for example, in gravitational waves. And if you measure that thing, uh, that gives you some clues about the internal composition of the body. And, uh, and that's very exciting because neutron stars are pretty mysterious objects. We don't know very much about the nature of nuclear matter at those extreme densities that you find inside neutron stars. So those types of measurements could really inform a lot uh, you know, inform us a lot about these things. So that's that's where we're heading with this. So by doing gravitational physics, we're actually hoping to learn something about nuclear physics because it's the nuclear physics that, you know, dictates what happens inside neutron stars. Is there any, uh, is there any sort of, impl this is sort of wishful thinking, but is there any implications of using the love numbers to kind of help the, the, the three-body pro problem that, has been sort of plaguing uh, physicists for years, trying to figure out the gravitational force between three bodies. Is there any application for the love number in that? Uh, not directly. So the three-body problem is, you know, is a classic problem of you know Newtonian mechanics, where you know we know everything about two bodies. We can solve the 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 problem of determining the motion of two bodies exactly without making any approximations. As soon as you insert a third body, uh, it doesn't work like this anymore. So there's no exact solution. Uh, of course, we still know the forces, but we just don't know how you know the forces will be uh, integrating to uh, to give you the detailed motion. So there are various approximations you can make, and you can make progress if, for example, one of the masses is much smaller than the other ones. But yeah, there's no exact solution to the three-body problem in Newtonian physics. In relativity, it's even worse. There's no exact solution to the two-body problem. Uh, so, uh, so in life, you often have to give up with exact solutions. You know, they're nice when they come around, uh, but usually they're used as a stepping stone to do something more interesting. So, for example, even in Newtonian mechanics, uh, we have an exact solution to the two-body problem, provided that each body is a model as a point mass. But that's an approximation. If you allow for tidal deformations, for example, or any you know, other type of deformation, then the problem becomes a lot more complicated and the exact solution no longer applies. So in life, typically in physics, exact solutions uh, are very restricted to very, very you know, highly symmetric situations. And if you want to actually describe something that you actually see in the universe, uh, you have to go away from exact solutions. And that's been, you know, a big theme in my research. So, you know, when I do, um, you know, when I think of gravitational waves emitted by a binary system and one of the object is a black hole, well, a useful starting point would be the exact description of the gravitational field of one black hole. But that describes just one black hole. If I want to put stuff in that, you know, space-time, I have to go away from the exact solution. I have to come up with ways of doing this. And you know, throughout my work, I've, you know, I've come up with lots of different ways of doing what we call perturbation theory, which is to say, start from your exact solution, but then build up on that away from the exact solution, build up corrections uh, in a sort of perturbative setting where you assume that something is small and then you do you know, expansions around that small quantity. So in the context of what I was talking about, the tidal forces tend to be small. The tidal deformations tend to be small. So you can build them on top of a description where you neglect these things, and that becomes a perturbation. And uh, before we move on quickly, um, I, I wanted to ask, as someone who does study black holes, do you, have, do, do you often watch Hollywood interpretations of black holes and kind of, you know, roll your eyes? <laughs> do, do, do you find this kind of sort of mythical hysteria that, that's associated with black holes in Hollywood? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be curious to hear your opinion about this. So I, I, I find it very easy to suspend my, you know, scientific filter or whatever to, to just get rid of it. So I, I was a big fan of Star Trek. You know, Star Trek: The Next Generation. I mean, The Next Generation came up, came out when I was a graduate student, and for me that was a very exciting show. And of course, every time they were, you know, go to warp speed, I knew that you know there was no such thing. 
but you know, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with this. I, I find it very easy to, you know, to accept all of this. And I think science fiction would be boring if you had to respect science all the time. Now, an interesting experiment along those lines is Interstellar. So you, you probably heard the story about Interstellar where, you know, Kip Thorne, Kip Thorne originated the idea of, you know, coming up with a science fiction movie that would be, you know, strictly ad adhering to, uh, to science as we understand it. And, you know, he started out this way, but as soon as he started to talk to Christopher Nolan, uh, it became clear that this wouldn't work out because, you know, Nolan wanted to tell a story. He didn't want to be shackled by science and he had to compromise this. I mean, he sort of, you know, stretched it a little bit, but, you know, in some places in the movie, he certainly went way beyond what would be considered today as being scientifically valid. And I'm fine. I mean, I'm fine with this. I don't have a problem with this. Uh, I guess I would have a problem if somebody was presented as scientific when it's not. So if they pretend to do science and it's not, then, you know, I get really offended very quickly. But if you're doing science fiction and you present it as fiction, it's fine. I mean, do, do your worst. And I, actually, from what I understand from Interstellar, um, that the, the model and the, the animation model that they use to represent the black hole during that, that pivotal black hole scene where they're orbiting around it with the, uh, with, with their craft and there's that sacrificial moment and all that, the, 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 the actual render was, was, uh, from what I understand, helped propel and publish two papers on black hole research on black hole visualization or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if yeah. Heard about that at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, uh, you know, there were certainly papers published uh, just about the mathematics behind the ray tracing that had to be done to visualize those black holes. And it was, you know, it was a very massive effort. So it turns out that the ray tracing is not, I mean, is, first of all, it's complicated because you're dealing with the curved space-time of a black hole, but it's even more complicated from the fact that they wanted to recreate also the... Um, uh, the uh, the magnifications and the uh, you know the fluctuations in intensity that you would encounter if you were to look at a black hole with a field of stars behind it, for example. So yeah, those were massive calculations that the uh, special effects team over in Britain had to do, and you know Kip Thorne and others really had to formulate all the mathematics behind this. I mean, a lot of the equations were known in the past, but they had never been sort of collected in such a way that they could be readily used. Uh, by special effects people. So he really had to do his homework on this. And yeah, they ended up visualizing the black hole with the accretion disk around it. They also had to visualize wormholes because part of the story is going through a wormhole and they had to sort of visualize, you know, what you see as you're going through the wormhole. You know, you see the other side, but you see, you know, you, you see the, the current side as well. So yeah, they, they had to do a lot of work on this. And all of this was based on, you know, the actual mathematics of curved space times for black holes. So that, I think that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, where it went, you know, beyond, I think, science as we know now is when, you know, the guy actually falls into the black hole and encounters, I don't know, uh, that kind of weird structure. And then he ends up going backward in time. I mean, that, you know, that I think is pretty far-fetched. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of it was, you know, really grounded in very good science. Well, like you said, it's, you can't let the science take away from telling a good story all the time. So, right. Just but, like the uh, truth, right? Just like the truth, of course. <laughs> By the way, sorry, Callum, before you go ahead, I just wanted to point out that Star Trek The Next Generation was my favorite show growing up as well. My dad showed it to me. Jean Luc Picard is the greatest uh, captain of the Enterprise. Changed my mind. Sorry, I'll, I'll back off, Callum. Go ahead. Yeah, Picard, Picard was the greatest captain, to be sure. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you can agree on that. Um, <laughs> but, but you're not gonna you're not gonna put in you know your own. Well, I can't weigh in because I, I haven't seen any Star Trek. To be honest with you, maybe that's uh, blasphemy. Unfortunately, <laughs> a, blasphemy maybe for a, a, a physics major. But uh, <laughs> I want to uh, kind of switch switch uh, gears again and circle back to we talked a little bit about uh, physics education and and uh, your a little bit about your approach to that in the uh, beginning with the, 
the textbooks and stuff. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, you have, I will compliment you and engage in a little bit of flattery here and that you have great skill as a physics educator. And, and when you explain things, it, it does seem to make sense. And, uh, you know, maybe that's a consequence of, you know, the writing you've done and, and the uh, collecting of your thoughts that you've done. Um, but, you know, I wanted to ask, is that something that's come easily to you, physics education? Um, or, you know, did you have to, was there a, a, some sort of journey that propelled you to where you are right now with teaching? Yeah, I don't know if I can answer this very well. So, so when I started, you know, my PhD and when I, you know, uh, started to get established as a researcher, I mean, one big component of this, obviously, is to communicate. So you have to write papers, you have to give talks, you have to go to conferences, you have to talk to people. And I think pretty quickly in that process, I discovered that I had a talent for presentation. So I could, you know, present my stuff well. It's a challenge uh, often because, you know, you just spend months doing a massive calculation about something. No one wants to hear the details of that. I mean, no one wants to go through the equations line by line, you know, you know, as much as you would like to do that because you're so proud of what you've just done. No one wants to hear that. So you have to find a way to present whatever you've done in a way that will attract attention, uh, arise interest in all of this. And that's something I started thinking about, you know, how, how, you know, how to do that. So when, when I was a, you know, a graduate student, I really started very seriously about this and I, you know, started to take notice about the talks that I liked, what was it about them that I liked, and what didn't I like, you know, what was it about that that I didn't like, and, you know, eventually I sort of came up with a way of presenting stuff, and then, you know, you know, gratifyingly, uh, you know, I was told that, you know, I was giving good talks and and such, so, I mean, it sort of fed on itself, right, so, you know, the more validation I was getting, the better, I guess, I was getting at it. So, you know, all of those things that I learned as a researcher, I applied as a teacher. And of course, it's different because you're not teaching at this, you know, you're not teaching the same people as you present your research to. So I had to make some adaptations for this. But I guess because I had gone through that process of thinking very carefully about what is, you know, good presenting and what is not good presenting, I guess I had, you know, maybe a head start or something like this. I, I sort of fell into that fairly fairly naturally and then i just got better at it i mean i've i've been teaching at guelph for more than 25 years it would be sad if you didn't get you know if i didn't get better at it um and but i guess you know what's most important about this is the desire to do it well i mean if if you're not interested in doing that well uh you're not going to ask those questions you're not going to go through those you know those reflections uh, and you're never going to do all that well. But, you know, if you have, you know, a desire to be good, like, you know, being good at guitar, uh, that just means that you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about what you're doing and trying to improve on your skills. And I guess I did that. And, of course, I have to let you be the judge of whether I'm successful or not. But, I mean, I think I can say from student evaluations over the years that I think, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing a fair job of it. But sometimes I think, and maybe that's something you can tell me about this. I mean, sometimes I, I worry that, you know, suppose that I'm the perfect lecturer and I explain things, you know, completely clearly to my audience. Isn't there a danger that you're going to, you know, you're going to think you understand it all without doing, without really doing, you know, without really understanding it, you know, wouldn't it be better to get a really bad teacher that forces you to do it all by yourself? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, you know, it, it can't be, you know, it, it, what I'm saying is that the perfect lecturer can give you an illusion that you understand it all, whereas the really bad teacher forces you to not, you know, be uh, illusioned by any of it. You have to do it all by yourself. So somehow to be too perfect or too, you know, too lousy is probably, well, it's probably not good either way. So you probably need to be somewhere in the middle where you leave something for the student to do in order to internalize the knowledge because otherwise, you know, it probably fades away pretty quick. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of paradox to to have. And I think that, yeah, striking the right balance there is probably, you know, one of the 
well, I can't speak from experience, but I imagine that it's one of the most difficult parts of teaching. Like that's, uh, it's not a position that students take very often because, you know, they, they just see, you know, all oh, of this, uh, person didn't this the lecturer didn't explain this how are, are we supposed to ex- understand that but there is definitely especially in in the field of physics there's some self-learning that has to go in um, in order to really understand the material right um, and i think the self-learning and, is where you actually do learn so uh, i mean that that's something i really have a firm opinion about so you know as a teacher i can help you with the process but if you don't go through the process yourself and uh and internalize it yourself well you know you're not going to go, you're going to only go so far. I mean, I think what you, what you tend to learn and remember and understand deeply is the stuff that you had to learn yourself. Well, there's a, uh, there's a common expression that scientists aren't very good communicators and communicators aren't very good scientists. So the ability to do both is really, you know, quite valuable. And Yeah, but I don't think I buy into this. I, I think that's a little bit too... Uh, too simplistic. I think a lot of the very good scientists are also very good communicators, like Feynman, of course. No, but yeah, yeah, but not just you know, not just the uh, you know the 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 outliers. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about run of the mill scientists who have a certain quality in their you know in their achievements and a certain quality in their skills. I think you know, by and large, there's a pretty good correlation between scientific achievement and communication. Do you think that kind of comes from the passion as well? That if you're very passionate about your field, you're very enthusiastic about it. It's very, you know, it's it's a it's a means of effective communication. I think so. I think in order to, yeah, I think in order. So, you know, if you want to share your science with anybody, you have to communicate it, and that means at different levels. You can communicate communicate with a graduate student, and you have to be good enough at that that they get engaged and they understand what it is that you know that you're trying to do. You have to communicate with undergrads because you're trying to recruit them as grad students. You have to communicate with your peers, you know, other faculty members who are not experts in your field. You have to communicate with your grandmother. You have to communicate with the granting agency. So, you know, communication is really key. I mean, I could do all my science all by myself all the time. What would it, you know, what good would it do? So in, so in my experience, when I, I mean, when I look at scientists I really admire, I find them to be, you know, by and large, not every time, not for everybody, but I, by and large, I find them to be good communicators. I stand corrected then. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, this actually is a question for the both of you. It's no coincidence that Callum is co-hosting right now, because Callum, you are the uh, curriculum coordinator, correct, for... Um, third year and uh, curriculum committee representative for third sorry. year I think is technically the uh, <laughs> the title okay there, there, there you go not that we should get too deep into titles no no, no of course but there was talk about a general relativity course that was going to be offered for the undergrads um, that either would occur in third year or fourth year I just wanted to know for for any of the, the listeners out there if they could be interested about that just wanted to know the, the status on that if that's something that could be implemented in the future uh, yeah, so I'm pretty to announce that. Uh, so in the winter of 22, there will be a GR course, a special topics course in GR, uh, open for fourth year students. So uh, so that's going to be a special topics course, and I, I've given such a course in the past on a sort of one-off basis for a number of times. I think it would be delightful if a course on general relativity were uh, offered on a regular basis. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that's something that if there were, you know, if, if there were demand for this coming from the students to actually promote a one-off course into a regular offering, I think, uh, I think it could happen. I think it's just a matter of, you know, making sure that the curriculum committee uh, hears the message and uh, that's where you can play a role. Well, yeah, I definitely uh, will be continue to be an advocate for that. Uh, that's great news. I, I've uh, that it's possible that that's still going to go on. I'd worried that uh, that might get, you know, pushed aside because of the current pandemic situation uh, affecting stuff. But hopefully that doesn't happen, and and that would be you know fantastic. Uh, 
I'm really excited about that, actually. I, I hope you can tell. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> I, I'm excited about this, too. And you, you, you can thank uh, Paul Garrett, the chair of the department, for, uh, for approving this. Well, that's awesome. Great. Um, so we're approaching the end of our time here, um, but I want to kind of ask, looking to the future, as you know, often is done as a conclusion, uh, what kind of ex results are you excited to see in the world of physics in, you know, in gravitation and general relativity or, or outside of that? You, know, you can answer very generally if you like. Um, what results are you most excited to see uh, that you think will be coming up in the near future, if you could hazard a guess at that? Yeah, I guess I won't stray too far away from what I'm currently thinking about. I mean, I could be thinking about great breakthroughs in quantum gravity or great breakthroughs in cosmology. For example, are we going to ever find out what dark energy is all about? Are we going to find out what dark matter is all about? I mean, I don't expect that to unravel anytime soon. I think probably in, you know, if I were to guess 30 years from now, you know, we'll still be you know, wondering what these things are. Um, but, you know, there was really a phase change in, in, uh, in astronomy uh, five years ago when LIGO detected the first signal. And, uh, and you know, LIGO-Virgo was never just about measuring gravitational waves. It was about, you know, having a new way of observing the universe. So it's not so much the detection of gravitational waves as it is the observation of the universe through gravitational waves. And the whole thing changed everything so that the, the you know the, the the 2015 discovery really changed everything and now you know observations of gravitational waves have become routine I mean not so much right now because the detectors are shut down because of covid uh, but you know when it all restarts I mean the detectors are going to be even more sensitive there's going to be more detections that will keep on getting better and better over the years. And already today, you know, five, six years into, uh, into this run, we know a lot more about the universe compared to, uh, to what we uh, did before. I mean, before everybody was guessing that, you know, black holes, uh, you know, solar mass type black holes can have masses maybe up to, you know, 10 or 15 solar masses. Now we know that there are black holes of 30, 40, you know, even 60 solar masses. That's, you know, that's a big discovery, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, now we're finding a lot more about, you know, neutron stars and black holes out in the universe. We're, you know, starting to develop population statistics for these things. We're starting to understand, you know, how those binary black holes uh, formed in the first place. And that's what gets me really excited, because, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, we're going to know a lot more about the universe compared to our state of knowledge today. Every time we have a new tool to do astronomy, like radio telescopes, like X-ray, uh, you know, X-ray satellites, uh, all of those new technologies uh, changed our view of the universe. And that's happening yet again with gravitational waves. And that's really getting me very, very excited. So it's a beautiful time to do physics. Uh, you know, I think probably it's true in all areas, but it's, uh, it's certainly true in gravitational physics and astrophysics. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's good to hear. And uh, it's actually, we actually are kind of out of time. Um, we, this has been an excellent conversation, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, we're actually going to continue this theme next week. I'm going to be interviewing one of your peers, uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel. Um, excellent. Yeah. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any tips on, on, on what to do, what not to do? Does he have a like, uh, is there anything that you really want us to uh, to ask and delve into, just as one of his peers, and 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 to kind of highlight the uh, the department's research on astrophysics and gra gravitation? Um, no, I think you can do whatever you want. Uh, but I mean, I have to say that it's been a delight for me for the last few years to have two new colleagues in the department. Uh, Daniel is one, and Huang Yang is another one. Uh, who were hired jointly with Perimeter Institute. Mm -hmm. And without Perimeter Institute, that would not have been possible. But it's been you know, fabulous for me to now have colleagues who I can talk to on a very regular basis and, and talk about all this great stuff that's happening in gravitational physics. So Daniel is a superb researcher who's doing you know, fabulous things uh, you know, by colliding neutron stars, 
and seeing what comes out of, of that. Uh, and Juan is a you know, wonderful guy who, who has a very broad expertise in gravitational waves and what produces them. So it's, it's just fabulous uh, to have them around. And of course, it's been fabulous to have Perimeter Institute around for all those years, because that certainly changed the face of theoretical physics, not just in Southern Ontario, but, you know, in Canada and probably around the world as well. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very lucky to be right here because I, you know, was able to, you know, to partake in all of this. But now, you know, regarding your interview with Danielle, I'm sure you'll have a great time and I'm sure he'll tell you some great stuff as well. That's wonderful. And I'll, I'll definitely have to ask him about perimeter and, and what happens there. Um, but um, with with that in mind, uh, I really appreciate it coming on. Do you mind letting the listeners know uh, where can they, you know, find more of your work, find more of your research and just sort of look you up online? Yeah, so I have a, I have my personal web page uh, within the departmental website. So if you click on that, you can find all sorts of things, you know, recent papers and, uh, you know, some description of my research. Uh, you mentioned my lecture notes. I have a few lecture notes posted there. So, yeah, that's a good place to start. Very good. Gentlemen, this has been excellent. Thank you so much. Callum, thanks so much for coming on and co-hosting. Eric, thank you for coming on and showing uh, your, your knowledge, wisdom, and the fact that there's one other Trekkie fan that isn't afraid to say that the next gen, I'm not going to start. Anyway. No, um, I'm very proud. And thank you. I had a good time. Awesome. I appreciate it. Stay safe, gentlemen. And uh, yeah, take care. This episode of Griffins and Gluons was brought to you by the Physics and Astronomy Club at the University of Guelph. Stay tuned on our Instagram and Discord to hear more about our events and fundraisers that will be happening all throughout this semester and next semester. Follow our Instagram at UOGPAC, that is UOGPAC, and our Discord UOFGPAC, that is UOFGPAC. Thank you so much for tuning in, we'll catch you in the next one. Take care.